And one of, if you went to a school and said, well, you could hire as many teachers as you wanted for a dollar a day. And it's probably less than that, right? How many teachers would you hire? No teacher can sustain that level of engagement that social media can. And now it's an AI enabled. The skills, like I say, the skills that teachers need are probably going to change. And the type of people who are interested in teaching, that's, that's going to change as well. You know, it's going to be, it's only really going to be the people who really like working with kids. Hello, and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Stefan Bauchard. Stefan is the author of several blogs that have caught the attention of many people in the social media world. He is a real investigator into AI. It's a generative AI. He is the co-founder as well of Educating for AI. And you will see from this conversation that we explore many different facets of artificial intelligence. There might be some things that surprise folks, some things that make you feel perhaps a little bit more uncomfortable. I just want to highlight the fact that the end of the conversation has probably Stefan's most powerful message, which is that in the future, teachers will be those who care about kids. And that's really the message and the idea that I'd like you to have and retain as you listen to the conversation and certain things that might shock you. Ideas such as the fact that AI might be able to teach our kids certain things better than any human. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.com. And I look forward to hearing more about your thoughts on this matter of AI. And in the meantime, I'll leave space for my conversation with Stefan. Hi, Stefan. I'm really excited to have this conversation. We have bumped into each other in the LinkedIn world. I've read your articles uh, and they've been so incredibly thought-provoking. Thought-provoking, but also in, in, you know, to a large extent, you're, you're a provocateur in the way you present uh, artificial intelligence and the possibilities there with a bent on more than just education, but those are really the articles that, that grabbed my attention. I, I'd love to explore more what you're thinking. Um, I'd like to signpost this for, for us, of course, and, and for the listeners that really the world of AI is something that's been talked about quite a lot and, and nobody knows what's going to happen, but, but there are certain probabilities and certain trends and certain patterns and, and signals that are out there. So maybe we, can, we could talk about those uh, and, and how you envision them. So I'll start off with the question that we ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me. And uh, thank you for uh, using the word provocateur. Uh, other people may say, well, you're, you're kind of, uh, you know, you, you attack people or ideas or institutions. Um, but I'm, what I'm really trying to do kind of in a, you know, in a, in a meta sense is, is to get some ideas out there uh, and get people to think. Um, now, you asked me kind of, you know, where, you know, where I come from, what I do. You know, my background's really in academic debating. Uh, and my first debate as a middle school student as an eighth grader in 1984. Um, and I've been involved with that ever since, you know, in different ways, whether, you know, I was a debater, I helped coach debater, I helped build debate tournaments, I helped reconceptualize um, some different ways that debate and debate tournaments uh, operate. And I bring that, and I'll take and talk about that in a concrete sense. I kind of obviously kind of bring a little bit of that here, you know, pushing out some arguments and ideas. But in debate, I mean, obviously, sometimes you really you start to believe something, but you're often just, you know, you're making your argument, especially when you first start learning about something and you're working on a topic or an idea, you're advancing your arguments, you know, maybe somebody even on your own team is responding and it's really an iterative process, uh, which kind of gets you towards a conclusion, which is kind of, you know, temporal in and of itself uh, and always subject to revision. So I kind of often, you know, the content I'm pushing out is kind of that early stage of, you know, I've given it some thought, I don't want to say any random thing. Um, but I've given it some thought and I kind of like, okay, like, well, you know, what do people have to say? And I, I love it when, of course, it's nice, you know, when people get the like and the thumbs up and like makes you feel good or they say, well, I really agree with that. But I, I like it too when someone says, oh, well, you know, I, I don't really like agree with that part. And like, this is why. And, you know, usually, usually it's not becomes this like competitive back and forth. It's like, well, where do you take that? What, what do you do with that? Right. Does that like kind of thing that they pointed out that maybe they don't agree with or think is correct? Like, it doesn't mean you like throw out everything you originally said or that they're entirely right or that somebody is wrong. It kind of advances the dialogue. We say, oh, okay, well, yeah, I hadn't really thought of that. And because I hadn't thought of that, like I think this is actually a better articulation of, of what you're doing. So I bring a lot of that here. Uh, in a concrete sense, I kind of got involved in it. I was actually, uh, you know, I work with some students at a school, a specific school. 
uh, coach debate there. And we had, we had debate practice, you know, after school, that's pretty common. And uh, I was just sitting there and I, I was flipping through the internet, waiting, waiting to start. And there's a publication in the New York post. This is in New York. And it's kind of this like same kind of thing. Like, you know, it's, it's a kind of great headline grabbing thing. It said like this company, I don't know if it's a chat GPT or something's coming to destroy Google. And I thought, well, gee, I, I use Google all the time. So, you know, what, what, what's the saying? I figured it was a bit sensationalized, right? But like, well, it's just something I use every day. Now they're going to destroy it. Um, and it kind of just read what, what it, you know, was, and it, you know, kind of seemed like a search engine at the time, which is a metaphor people have used for this. And I, I just tried it out and I was like, Oh my God, like, this is incredible. Um, you know, and I kind of thought this is really going to change what I do and like how I teach, because, you know, I'm teaching kids to, to write speeches. I'm working with them to write speeches, write arguments. Like, Oh, this, can, this can basically do it, especially for a beginner. Even, even at that time, that was chat GPT 3.5. Um, it, it couldn't do what like my better debaters do, but it, it could certainly do better than than my new debaters, right? So um, I thought, well, this is really going to change. And you know, all through debate practice, I, I was kind of like just in my head, I was somewhere else. Um, you know, unlike you know a chatbot wouldn't do that, right? So may have been a better teacher in that moment, but you know, I was in my head kind of this, and I just played with it a bit over time. Um, I got really involved in this in January when some schools like in the U.S. like you started banning it. It, it kind of really, really kind of made me angry. Um, which, you know, a chap I wouldn't do, but, you know, I kind of like, not internally, because I knew some of the people, they were good people, and, um, you know, some of them I work with, and, you know, they told me why they banned it, but I, I, it kind of really bothered me, because I, I realized this technology is really going to change the world, and I thought about some students I work with, you know, and it, it is a very small percentage, but only have, like, a school computer, so schools could only ban this, like, on their school networks or their school devices, right, so if you had, you had basically any other device, you could use this, um, so there were only really a small percentage of kids who couldn't even use it. And that was a technology that's going to change the world. Small percentage of kids can't use it. All the other kids are using it anyhow. So that's kind of what motivated me uh, to get involved. And then, you know, also just kind of a little selfishly, like I've been in debate for a long time. I mean, we've debated climate change a million years. That, that debate's changed on the edges and in the context. So I'm often working with ideas I already know a million things about. And this is something I, you know. I mean, generative AI, like <laughs> how many people know about, knew about it, right? Um, so this is something that, uh, you know, I, I, I got to learn about. I've always really been interested in education, but in education my whole life, you know, a little kind of in, in a little uh, specific way with the debate. But, um, you know, kind of really thought about that. And then recently, I'll just kind of, I'll, I'll throw this out there and then we could talk about some other things. But I've kind of recently just really been thinking about in an AI world, how valuable is debate? And we've seen this creeping into other 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 conversations, teaching critical thinking skills, teaching uh, communication skills. So I'm working on a more academic article uh, with a couple of friends on that. I think it has a lot of potentials. I think especially, you know, in the classroom assessments kind of have to shift a little bit more perform, performance-based um, in, in classroom things because you're, you're not going to really have any, any idea who <laughs> who's doing like who's writing essays or you know even even doing science projects anymore you know it can be done you know, we're not going to know that the kids are doing that so I kind of have that as kind of a little bit of a you know I could talk about but I, I kind of talked about that intro for a while so and let's let's kind of hitch on to this in terms of these these ideas of essays and these ideas of performance and these ideas of science and really I, I like to open up the conversation here in terms of what we knew about let's say certainly 25, 30 years ago, before the internet, and when there was a scarcity of information. And then the assessments that were done or whatever you did in order to get that mark was about your performance, let's say, during, during an exam or during a science fair, whatever it might be. Then with the internet, of course, we're getting more and more information, and then we flip from scarcity to abundance, and then it's about how do we sift through everything? How do we go through, uh, particularly with social media, you know, what might be uh, more or less accurate? I don't want to use the word true. Um, although I'm not talking about a post-truth world, but but certainly, um, you know, not not saying that there's a truth in the capital T. But now we're in a situation where we have a piece of software code, generative AI, that actually produces information. And people talk about co-pilots. People talk about having our digital twin. There's just a different way then of producing data and information that we're no longer being able to be individualized, not only because... There's also a stress on collaboration between humans, but now we're looking at being able to use a machine. What are some of the things that you're seeing in terms of trends, in terms of what these performances might be? What is it that we're going to have to move towards or away from potentially, given the fact that all these assessments that we've used before, they're just going to be completely uh, challenged. Yeah, I think like, you know, to comment on a couple of things you just said, I think you really kind of hit the nail on the head, right? Like first there was all this information. 
we had to go find it. And I, I was talking actually to debate camp yesterday about, about AI. And I said, when I debated, you know, you had to go to the library and like find, find all your materials and then you, you could get on the internet. But I, I think the thing is too, you went not just with more availability of information and, you know, you, you hang a little bit of like post-truth, right. But kind of more decentralized information flows. So, you know, when I was a kid, which wasn't that long ago, like it, you had to get the information from the teacher or the school or like the library, right? I mean, other than maybe, you know, watching the news, right? Like the, those are the only places to get information. And now there's this information like everywhere and schools kind of lost control, right? Parents and schools lost. It wasn't just that there was more information. They lost control of the information flow. And, you know, you see some countries trying to, to trying to kind of rein in like that, that like control of information. Um, but now, right. It, it's gone even farther, right? Because now, you have AIs that can kind of essentially like produce information based on, you know, other contexts and not literally making things up. We can talk about that. Sometimes they get the facts wrong, but you know, these days, you know, there's a lot of information out there that's being created. And then there's, there's uh, the idea that it, it used to be that like, you know, you could use technology to help you access information or organize information, right? Or maybe do some small things like, you know, check your spelling and grammar. But now we have technology that can interact with you and basically teach you. It can teach you information. And we're, we're not just information, but maybe skills too. And we're just at the nascent, like the beginning to that. But, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, and I talk to people now, now a lot, we're on like these teaching bot companies and tutor bot companies and all these kind of things, right? And there's, there's academic work on this. There's kind of general blog work on this. We're going to have, uh, you know, some people are just calling them tutors because I don't think they need to use the word. They're afraid to use the word teacher because that, that makes people, people angry. But they are going to be able to teach students and they're going to be able to teach them quite well. And I think this is really where like education, like, you know, this obviously falls under the domain of technology. And there's all these people in education technology. And that's wonderful. And they, they have a lot to contribute, but none of them, like, I, I, I can't imagine unless they were involved in some experiments with this technology early on, have any experience with technology that can actually teach students, right? This is fundamentally uh, changes everything and interacts with students in, in some ways, you know, some ways better and in some ways not as well as a human. Um, so I think there's that, I, you know, so that that is like, I don't think that that can be overstated. Um, you know, that basically, you know, you, you, you told me before we started, you know, be principal of middle school and high school. So, you know, it's like, and one of, if you went to a school and said, well, you could tire as many teachers as you wanted for a dollar a day. And it's probably less than that, right? How many teachers would you hire? You take a school that maybe has a thousand students, right? So maybe what do they have in there? Maybe 50 teachers. Okay. Well, well that's probably as many as they could afford. Um, you know, they're physical like constraints too but like you know some and now we have teaching assistants in some of the rooms so maybe that gets us to two but imagine that you could have a teacher for every student for a dollar a day it's actually probably be like a dime a day or less right how would that change how not just how would that change your, your school how would that change how students are taught would you do that i think the schools that really survive this like as institutions over the long term are going to adopt this model and support this model where they're basically having a teacher for every child uh, in the classroom and some other changes as well in terms of, um, you know, I don't think we'll have subject silos. I think age things will still be relevant just for socialization reasons, but not as defined with second and third grade for, you know, going, moving on to fourth grade with the percentage of the knowledge. So I think you're kind of looking at some pretty big changes there. But I think the assessment, I think, you know, and people will say this and you can hear this say, well, oh, we've had a lot of changes before. But schools didn't really change, right? And we've had problems with that in the United States. You, you have deindustrialization and, you know, people say, well, their jobs went away. Yeah, but there were new jobs, right? And people weren't really trained for them, right? So people make the argument, right, that, hey, technology, we've had all these technologies that come and gone and, and schools really haven't adapted. They didn't adapt to the information age all that well in terms of what needed to be taught. That's true. But this is different because this technology you don't have to, as a school, bring in all those quote unquote teachers, teaching bots and use one-to-one. -one. You can ignore that and maybe it won't really change your school. You can't ignore the fact that most of any, like I call it single artifact assessment. Other people call it output assessment. It's just completely like probably obliterated um, by this technology because, you know, you may have seen my articles and things like 
you know, and other people say the same thing. Basically, these plagiarism detectors, they don't work. Any any kid who kind of knows what they're doing, short of just copying and pasting most of the content, it'll catch that. But then even then, you got to prosecute them, all these kind of things, right? You got to prove it, right? Short of kids doing that, any kid who kind of knows how to use this or you can buy a tool like Conchayot that'll help you like kind of do this, like you're not going to have any idea what is being done either by like a student themselves, the AI by itself, or like some combination of the two or how to assess that. So, you know, people talk about integrity and assessment because we give kids grades. I don't know how you have any, even going into this fall, how you have any integrity uh, in those types of assessments. So to me, these technologies, they're going to change schools, right? Like schools have to react to that. I mean, I guess they can say like, well, whatever, we'll just keep giving the kids the same grades and life life will go on. You know, there, there's certainly that approach. And if you want to have integrity in assessment, you have to change your assessment. And I said this back in May, uh, when I did a presentation at, at, at this Cottesmore conference, you know, everybody's talking, you know, this is a subject at technology conferences. There's kind of ed tech people on LinkedIn. You know, people are getting hired as consultants. I don't know why people know about assessment. They're not, they should be the most hired people right now that exist because assessment, assessment has to change. That's the first change. To me, that's the change that has to happen before we even bring in like the quote unquote teaching bots, right? The kids will kind of bring those in on their own. And so will the parents. And yes, I think schools need to do that for equity and to improve the quality and the practices and make sure it's consistent with educational theory. But you have, you, since we don't know like these output assessments, we don't, there's no academic integrity in them anymore. Then you have to have some type of performative I, I think, you know, and assessment's not like, you know, I'm not, I'm not an assessment expert, but it seems to me, generally speaking, you need to have some type of in-class assessment. So that'll include tests. We already have those. So we don't need, you know, we probably don't need more tests, but some type of assessment where, you know, whether it's a questioning period, whether it's a debate, okay, whether it's some kind of project that they're also like working on in class, it's not just like an end of the semester project, but it's integrated into what they're doing. Um, where you can see the kids that kind of demonstrating what they know, where, where you can kind of ask them questions, like I'll just make it simple about what they're doing. So they can, you can show that they can show both that they're understanding the content that you want to teach and developing the skills that you want them to learn, which is like a whole separate debate. Um, but to me, like, I just, you know, for the purposes of academic integrity, like it seems we have tests and whatever else we come up with, it's more performance-based and you, you could probably have an assessment expert I'll break that down a bit more, but you know these 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 papers and uh, types of things that, that there there's no integrity in those anymore. So before we go deeper, I just want to explore one of the probably flashing red lights that's going off in a lot of the listeners' heads, and that is, what do you mean you're going to replace teachers with robots? That's not going to work. That's a terrible world. It's dystopian, and so forth. But we're not necessarily talking about that. It's only a certain amount of teaching of skills and knowledge that, that we're looking at. That the relationship piece will change, but there's still value in, in certain kinds of human-to-human -human relationships, human-to-more-than-human relationships. It's just going to change rather than, again, having kids tied to a desk being taught by some kind of android. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it'll change. And, you know, the more I think about debate and, you know, AIs and, you know, I use AIs for just the, the different AI tools. That's a shorthand that some people have started using. I think you'll start to see the more, more the model of teacher as coach. Like, I think that, you know, and this is like what, what I, you know, it's easy for me to relate to this because that, that's really my whole life. I haven't I haven't been I haven't done that much traditional teaching. Um when I coach students in debate, well, what does that mean? Well, when they first start, you're teaching them the format, the basic, it is kind of a little more directed teaching, right? But as they gain more experience, you're helping them develop their skills the same way a sports coach will. You're helping them work through their topics, right? You're doing some research with them, for them. They're, they're, you're changing it. They're making arguments. You're modifying it. You're talking through stuff at debate tournaments, right? Different ideas. And I think that's what will kind of fundamentally happen with education, at least the way it works. I think you'll see you'll, you'll see a lot of AI like subject teachers like AIs are going to be eventually not right now. Right. Because we have these hallucination problems and things like that. But there, there, there are easy ways to solve that. Right. You, you can limit the domain that, that the model is trading on to, you know, like science or narrow it down to biology or chemistry or physics or you know whatever you want. History, American history, European history. And you train it on that. And it's going to be as good at teaching. It's going to know, I'll say it this way, it's going to know the content 
as well as any teacher could like possibly know it, right? Like teachers make mistakes. They don't, you know, they misunderstand everything, right? And you take a test to become a teacher, you don't have to get a hundred to be, become a teacher, right? You are any profession really, right? So the 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 way it'll change is that the the bots will become excellent at teaching content, uh, probably better than eventually better than like, well, I'll say it this way, that the bots will know the content right? Better than probably any individual teacher and be able to share it accurately better than any individual teacher. So what role then does the teacher play, right? Well, the teacher becomes the facilitator, the teacher, the teacher kind of helps the, you know, the student like interact with the bot, right? To set it up, the teacher, you know, and this will probably come from a pie, like figure out what it is that the students need to learn. The teachers will need to sit there with the students and be be the human being, right? Because just like any student in, in a class, oh, they did bad on a, they did bad on a test. You know that individual student. You know maybe a student did bad on a test, and you kind of need to be harsh on them because they keep doing bad on tests and they're being lazy. Sometimes you need to be really nice because that student did bad on a test because something bad just like happened in their life, or they're just kind of off that kind of right that time, and you need to kind of like re encourage them or like re motivate them. You you don't have the same reaction to every student who does poorly on a test. Or maybe sometimes you're just like, hey, you know, I know you usually get an A, like, I don't know what happened here, but you better get it together for next time, right? So that's the role the teacher will play, right? Like in those soft skills and still organizing things. I do, I think all these subjects, these these silos, especially in the upper grades, right? we don't really have them. We have them a little bit in the lower grades, but not as meaningfully. Any elementary teacher can basically teach any subject, right? So, right, so you you have these kind of silos that'll 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 collapse and the focus won't be on the content. I think that'll change who teaches. You know, you know, some teacher become, you know, some teachers become history teachers because they really like history or they, you know, they really like biology. So they become biology teachers. But I think it'll just be somebody who becomes really good at, at teaching and what that means will change. Uh, what that means will change. It, it's really someone who's kind of facilitating that interaction. And in this case is think it's facilitating the interaction with the AIs, it's facilitating the interaction with the students as a group, if we still have groups of students in a, in a class, right? And th there are other like practical reasons we have groups of students in a class, like supervision, right? Like those kind of things that will have to be retained, right? So it'll be who's facilitating, who's facilitating the interaction with the AIs, who's facilitating the interaction uh, between the AIs and the group of students, who's facilitating the interaction between the students, because, you know, as you know, especially as a principal, the students don't always, quote unquote, uh, behave. And there's a lot of other things that have to happen. You know, there, there's social development occurring. There's, there's penalties that have to be given. Like, so all those kind of things, I think, will continue, but in a in a really in a different form. And I think the schools that recognize that and adapt, those will be the ones that will become your excellent schools. You'll probably have schools that kind of ignore this world. Um, that is emerging and they'll just kind of exist and they'll lose some students because parents are going to figure out they don't want their kids going uh, to school that way. And they'll either they'll either like drop out or they'll, they'll go into some kind of private uh, school or they'll become homeschooled. Right. There's all different permutations of of what can happen with that. But I don't think there's any way to avoid this technology, this particular technology disrupting education because it basically shreds assessment. It shreds common assessments, not all of them. It, it doesn't shred the test, but <laughs> there's probably some other performance things that are going on now that it doesn't shred, but it shreds all these papers. And, you know, you look at universities, there's just so much of lecture paper, lecture paper, lecture essay, right? And people thought, oh, you know, I'm so progressive. I'm getting away from the tests. I'm giving these kids these essays. And then the essays are, essays are like essays, research papers. I mean, these, these are meaningless um, or they will be soon. And I certainly don't want to lose this thread about assessment, but I just want to go a little bit deeper here. As you speak, I'm thinking, what difference is there really fundamentally between an AI bot or whatever that teaches that knows content better than anyone that can teach you skills as well and a video? Um, and, and you mentioned history. Well, I, I, I teach history. That, that That's my, my background. But I know that the best way I could teach about, say, the Hitler's rise to power is to show a video of some sort to get the images, the sounds, the speeches, the feel of the times. And so there's really not much difference between that because you're putting a piece of technology to teach a certain amount of content and again, to get that feel. I'm thinking also about Khan Academy. Khan Academy, which came out and nobody really had a problem with Khan Academy, but that also individualizes the students and, and makes allows them to work at a certain pace that works with them and they can rewind the, the video and so forth. I'm thinking about an AI bot when you're trying to teach a concept if I'm interested in Hitler's rise to power, but you're interested in, I don't know, the French Revolution, but we're looking at the same concept of uh, 
transitions of power, of revolutions, or whatever it might be, the, the AI can adapt itself to hit what's interesting and meaningful to us, which will probably allow us to connect a little bit deeper. It's just a more sophisticated way of showing video on demand. So I, I don't necessarily see there being too much of a difference between those as a way of imparting content. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to avoid the relationship piece, but we're talking about imparting content now. That, that's it. And, and from there, we can grow into the more sophisticated things about the relationships, about the connections, about working together, about, you know, working, being a collective and so forth. Yeah, I think, you know, you know, kind of in terms of the lecture, you know, I thought you'd bring that up and like showing the video, right? So the dominant, you know, especially at universities, this lecture it was obviously dominated essentially like in K-12 for a long time. And people have kind of moved to more like, you know, kind of interactive dynamic like classroom environments, but you still kind of have the one teacher kind of facilitating everything. Obviously the weakness of that is like, yes, that can be replaced by a video. And lectures kind of generally like 45 minutes to an hour, those are in the time blocks. There's literally no evidence that exists anywhere that says people learn well in 45 minute to one hour time blocks. That's just kind of how we organize the day. So any lecture that you give, you can put on video and somebody can play it. And I've learned a ton over the last few months, just listening to lectures uh, that are about an hour. I don't always listen to them for an hour. I listen to them for a half hour. I might listen to them for an hour. I might listen to three in a row. But if you're just, if you, you know, education is about lecturing, then it's better to deliver that by video, right? So I have no idea like well, how that model uh, survives, like even absent AI. But I think what AI does and you know, you could, there's a couple, there's a couple of things, right? Like the, the kind of the more simple thing is like, well, the AI will kind of understand like what I am learning at my own rate. So it's like, what, what do I really understand about transitions to power? Does this example that I've been given, does that work for me? Or does the AI need to like throw me another example, right? So it's kind of more dynamic. And, you know, as a teacher, if you have a class of even, even a small class of 15 kids, right? That's like on the lower side, like you can only give a kid like so much attention. But I think AI will be able to take it to the next level because we really... You know, we're talking about different modes of like AI, right? We have we have text to text, we have text to video, we have text to image, right? So eventually, eventually is probably like a year off or less. That that's going to become multimodal, right? So you're you're going to have you're going to have environments like created that you know contain text, audio, including audio, right? Video, all these things. And as you can see, they're starting to become immersive. Whether we want to refer to that as AR, VR, all those types of things. So you know, or spatial computing, right? And, you know, no, no one really likes wearing these glasses, but eventually that that's just going to go to where you have your regular glasses and it's not going to be so clunky and you're not going to have to wear these in the classroom for an hour that you're never going to get the kids to do, you know, but in terms of the example you gave, it's like, okay, well, you're, the difference is you're going to be able to go to, uh, you know, Nazi Germany and kind of be anybody you want, right? You're going to, you're going to be able to kind of, you know, and, and, and it used to take teachers forever to like, you know, if you did a project like this in an academic year, you'd be like, wow, this teacher really did this cool thing for like a few weeks where they had the students like engage in role playing and, you know, it took forever. And that that was like a one-off thing, right? No, but nobody could really sustain that for like an entire year, especially especially if you have a class of 30 kids. Like it just kind of, basically just kind of starts to melt down at some level. But when you have that, you know, in VR in an immersive environment and somebody can kind of be anybody anybody they want to be at any given moment and think about, well, gee, like, what would it be? I mean, it's kind of scary. You know, it's hard to say, well, what would it be? I want to know what it'd be like to be Hitler. Like nobody really wants to imagine that. Right. But like, what would it be, what would it be, what would it be like to be like a good person? Right. In history who like did, did some wonderful things and, or what just would it have been like to be like a peasant? Right. Like, What's it like to be in a war zone, right? Like, I mean, it's just horrible, right? Like, we, we read about what's going on in, like, Bakhmut or, you know, these places in Syria. But what's it like to actually, like, live in an environment like that? Um, and we'll be able to experience that. And, you know, that's something, like, a human, you know, can't really replicate. So these, these environments will be very immersive. Um, they'll be very interactive. They'll be very dynamic. And, you know, you can, can kind of – there's – there's this whole, I don't even know what's called a debate. I don't think it's much of a debate, right? Just because you gain students' attention doesn't mean they learn. Now, if they're not, if they're not engaged and you don't have their attention, then they're not, they're not going to learn. It becomes impossible, right? But just because we've engaged students does not mean they're learning anything. Um, so, right. So we have to kind of, we also then have to think about like, well, how do people learn and and what are and what are they learning? And you know, then there's broad questions, right? About 
you know, I mean, you can think of learning a kind of a couple broad categories of like content and skills, right? Is an open question on the content side of like, well, what do people still need to learn? Right. Because AIs can do a lot. Like school, schools are basically, and I think schools do a lot more than this, but we we talk about schools as kind of like ways of kind of building knowledge workers, right? Everything is around knowledge. That's how schools, oh, we know come to our school, your child should come to our school. They're they're gonna gain all this knowledge. We we help we help people develop knowledge. And there's an open question as to people still need knowledge, but there's an open question of like, what knowledge do you need, right? Like if, 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 if an AI can do all the knowledge work that someone who goes to Harvard can do, then like, what, what, what knowledge do they still need to have? And then, you know, what skills, I think there's a little more emerging consensus on that, like critical thinking, like social skills, um, communication skills, like those are all going to become kind of more important. So you know, there's that debate, but I, I the way I've been t- talking about it is like there's two boxes, right? There's how do we get AI to, AIs to help students develop the skills and the knowledge we wanted them to develop before we have an AI world? Then there's kind of the question of like how do we want students to learn and what do we want them to learn? What skills and content we have to learn that's relevant for an AI world? Now the second one is like we don't. We don't really know, right? Like, you know, this is going back and forth. Oh, it's going to replace all the computer programmers. No, we need better, right? No, we need better computer programmers, right? Like, probably will replace the accounts. That's not, it, it seems like, you know, it's a good, like, middle-class job, but, like, it, it's something that can be done by an AI, right? So, you know, there's a little bit of emergence. Um, but if we just kind of think to ourselves, like, you know, and there's a lot of companies selling these tools, right? Oh, if you use this AI, it'll help you get, like, uh, 800 on the SAT and math. Okay, but what, what, other than that, and for now, still helping me get into college, what does that really get me? What does it really mean to have like an 800 in math, right? Or is it the, like, who cares? Like, I, I kind of, I shape it too. Like the example I'll give is say like, well, if you're in the 1800s, at least in the United States, people generally went to school so they could learn how to read because that's all they really needed to do, right? Is become literate, then they could become a, like engage in farming. And most people engage in agriculture, but they, they could buy and sell their crops and kind of interact in their communities. So a school in the 1800s had, was, if you looked at now, if you, if you spent, if you just said, well, in our school, we teach kids how to read and really how to farm. Would anybody send kids to your school? Like, absolutely not, right? So if we're teaching, right, in, in the 21st century, in the AI world, right, because it bleeds, if in the AI world we're teaching non-AI, con- we're teaching pre-AI, and if in the AI world we're teaching pre-AI world content and skills, then sure, we're teaching content and skills, but they're not relevant to the world that we live in. And, you know, there's not enough, you can't fault school and say, well, you're not teaching the content and the skills for the AI world. We don't, we don't really know what they are yet. There's, you know, there, there's a lot of speculation and, you know, you can take this to extremes, you know, you can get into this, well, the AIs can do everything, I don't really need to learn anything. And there are going to be kids who think that. I said, you know, you talk about kids are motivated, not motivated. Wait till you have the first kids in your school whose parents lost their jobs to an AI. And that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, that I'm not trying to get this whole debate about whether there'll be more or less jobs. There will be people who lose jobs to AI, right? And you think, okay, my dad just lost his job to an AI. He's an accountant and you want me to learn math? Like, why? Like, where is this going to get me? And you can debate about whether or not that, that you know, that, that's a proper outlook. But in reality, that's going to be an outlook that, like, schools are going to have to deal with. Um, so, but I think it kind of, it's helpful to think about things in these, in these, in these boxes. And I, I almost think, like, schools need people. And, you know, this can be done in, you know, you know you're going to the school, like, you know, other school heads, other, other people who are thinking about these things because, these are not really so much competitive things among schools, but where is education heading? And, you know, what's it, what's it going to look like? Like, we already know the essay's dead, but what else do we really know? Um, and it is people are just obsessed with this. You know, you, you said, you know, you saw my blog and you know, I just launched a blog and I'm, I'm pretty happy. I'm like up to almost like 20,000 views, but my posts will get like, most posts will get like five or 600 views. I published a shortest post I ever did. How I beat a plagiarism detector with two words that had 1,100 views in an hour, right? So people are obsessed with plagiarism detectors right now, right? And that kind of is coming, and it makes sense, right? Because it's undermining that type of assessment. 
But I think people need to start thinking a little bit broadly. I just talk about plagiarism detectors when I talk to people because I know I have to. Um, it's the most common question I get, actually. Like, quote unquote, consulting wise, whether it's friends asking your ideas, schools is, what plagiarism detector should I buy? You shouldn't. You shouldn't buy one. Um, you got. They don't. They don't really work that well. They'll catch your worst students, but they already have bad grades. So the kids are just copy pasting the whole Chat GPT thing into the into the text, and they get caught. I bet their grades are pretty low, just on the whole, right? I bet they're not doing very well. So, okay, now they can do even worse. And now they can get like an academic penalty on their transcript, which will just kind of create this like snowball, right? I'm not saying you should just let them copy and paste, but again, you're not, you're not really altering, using a plagiarism detector, you're not fundamentally altering what's going on in your school because all the, all the kids who are at the top, quote unquote, top of the class, they know how to beat the plagiarism detectors. So you're like, oh, Johnny, He's a really good student. He has A's. And you know what? He never cheats on his papers. I just never papers never been flagged for with a plagiarism detector because Johnny knows how to beat the plagiarism detector. Just like Johnny knows how to do all his other work and get an A. Right. So um, now I'm kind of a little bit down on the plagiarism detectors, but you see, that's kind of the immediate focus. It makes sense because I don't think teachers are planning to come back to school with all kinds of new assessments. You know, I read an article in Ed Week, it, it's US focused, but it said like, 78% of teachers have not received any professional development and not like a conversation, a talk, anything about AI, right? So the only knowledge they have is kind of like what happened in their classroom a little bit. Um, so, you know, it's not going to be solved. Um, you know, I'm doing some stuff with some schools, but at this point, it's really, you know, when I talk to these schools and teachers and administrators, a lot of it right now is just kind of helping them understand like, what the technology does and like what it means. And it's like conversation and it's basic. It's not getting into like, here's some new assessments and here's the assessment experts you should hire. And this is how you, you know, over time the teachers are going to need to change their classrooms. Like there's none of that conversation because it's still like, well, what am I going to, you know, how do I manage, you know, all these kids. I talked to a teacher last year, like a hundred in a public school, she had like 130 students. And she basically thought like a third of them were having like chat GPT write their papers. And she took these papers and she ran them through four different plagiarism detectors. Imagine your teacher and you read 130 papers with four different plagiarism detectors. And then those that had high scores is like on all the detectors. Then she would like go through their Google Doc history. And I think my first question was like, is this like, how do you sustain this? Right? Just like, I can't, right? Like, so eventually it just becomes, it either becomes the assessment change or like, I mean, it's unrealistic to expect a teacher to, run 130 papers through four different plagiarism detectors, check people's Google Doc history, follow up. And, you know, she said in the end, like, I couldn't really, unless the kids admitted it, what could I really do? Because there's no, there's no definitive proof that they cheated. Um, but that, that's where a lot of the conversation is now. People's AI, in some schools, their A, at best, their AI policy entering the year is like a plagiarism policy, which is like, you know, borderline, like kind of irrelevant. It's irrelevant and also shows such a scarcity mentality of trying to catch out, which is so much of what schools have been about, discipline, getting people to do this, making them conform and so forth. And I go back to what you brought up earlier about the single artifact assessment. So the essay being a single artifact assessment of the whole class has to produce an essay or a poster or whatever whatever uh, uh, it might be. And and I heard about this, and, and, and you probably know more than I do on this, most certainly you do, about AI then will be able to look at different kinds of artifacts and be able to calibrate the value of what those artifacts do in terms of demonstrating understanding. Some kind of ruler that one has with, if it has a certain amount of, of artifacts, it could kind of say, well, this, this is kind of what it, it might look like uh, from a learning and, a, and an assessment point of view. I, I don't know if you've heard of that or, or if you can clear up what that might look like to have a multiple artifact assessment piece being looked at by AI? Well, I think the, I think it might be a little like easier, like I, the, the example like that I'm familiar with, because my son went through this, I, I think is math and it ma makes it quite, quite concrete. So, you know, there's a lot of research. I think, uh, you know, Benjamin Bloom was into this. One-on-one -on -one tutoring is really the, the way students like learn the most, right? And, you know, the wealthy people before you went into mass education, they, all their kids had individual tutors right? and then education became mass and people still have tutors and then tutors uh, before AI. And, you know, when my son was in eighth grade, 
you know, he did okay in math. He was like in regular math, you, get, you know, get like an A, B, like kind of, he was kind of in that range, but he wanted to do better at math. Um, so, so I got him, I got him a tutor and in one year. So then when he went in ninth grade, he, he went to a different school. Um, one year, he was a year ahead in math and went into honors math. Okay. And the, the reason that worked is because he had a one-on-one tutor and I saw like what would happen because I would get the tutoring reports. Okay. So what I mean, they'd say, okay, well, this, these two weeks, you're in this section, we're going to cover these things. And they wouldn't move on until my son basically learned everything in there. It didn't matter. Oh, it's not like, well, we covered these things for two weeks. Then we gave him a test and you know, he got a B and now, now we're on to the next thing, right? They'd say, okay, well, this is what we did in these two weeks. Your son still doesn't understand these four things. Okay. So we're not going to do anything else until he does these four things. Oh, Hey, or, you know, we covered all these things. Your son just doesn't understand this one thing. So we're going to integrate it into teaching on the next unit. So it became individualized in advance. So an AI is going to be able to do that with students, whether it's in math, okay, whether it's in some types of reading, they're going to understand and say, you know, well, you give a reading test, like, well, can the kids read? Can the kids understand? It's going to understand like what they can read, not read at a given moment. The same thing is true uh, in history. The same thing is true in biology. And that's one way it's going to be better than a teacher. And that that's not a and, you know, someone could just pull that out and put it on the media and says, Stephen thinks bots are better than teachers. But my point, you can't, you can't a teacher with, the, you know, even one class of 20 kids times five can't tutor and monitor and adapt, can't monitor every student's individual academic needs. You can kind of monitor it a little bit with grades, but then can't react to that and also teach the collective. That's impossible for a teacher to do, right? Like, even if they're like Einstein, like, and they work 24 hours a day and they never go to sleep. An individual teacher who has 100 students cannot do that, okay? A bot can do that. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about kind of individualizing the instruction and individualizing the the academic progress. So I'm talking about more as a single artifact assessment is like, well, you know, you turn in a paper and you get a final grade. And of course, there's a little bit of a breakdown of that, especially in K-12. People say, oh, well, show me a rough draft. You know, show me your final paper. Well, AIs can do all that. Uh, you know, the in Khan Academy, they try to restrict it. They kind of say, well, you, you just like do your work in the system. And, you know, if we try to cheat, you send the video to your parents, it all gets back at the cheating thing. But of course, they can just work outside the system and like copy and paste the stuff into the system. But, um, you know, that that's what I think the when you're kind of looking at the single artifact or even a multiple artifact, when you're looking at output, AI can produce output. And if we don't know if the student, unless we come up with some ways that we know it's the student's output, then how, how do you, you know, what, what integrity do you have in that assessment? I mean, of course, there's always cheating, right? Like somebody could hire somebody to write their paper or, you know, they, they could copy and paste some stuff from the internet, you know, which the, the quote unquote plagiarism detectors would catch. Right. But so there, there's already leakage, right? And that like once once we got into the internet world and they say Kenya, so I'll use that example. There's this, oh, there's all these people unemployed in Kenya now because they, they, they used to write kids' papers, right? Um, so there, there was always leakage in that system. It's just now it's completely blown open, right? Because anybody, you, you don't even need 10 or $20 to, to pay somebody to write your paper. It's more expensive than that. But you know, at the cheapest end, all you, you can basically get a paper with the free chat GPT, uh, 3.5 and with different levels it's easier right it's not as good as writing the academic articles yet you have to you have to kind of combine some tools and know some tricks but it'll be able to do that but you know it can write a seventh grade paper a seventh grade kids paper better better than a better than a seventh grader um and i had it uh you know i used anthropic for this. so in anthropic you can you can use a, a basically a seventy five thousand. i think it's word i forget if it's words or tokens but tokens represent words or parts of words in these systems um, you can have your prompt be that long and you can upload entire documents. So I had it upload, I or I uploaded two Supreme Court decisions. I had it summarize each. And then I had it compare and contrast the decisions and write me a five paragraph essay. And I picked two decisions that I knew were related and I basically understood. I, I'd studied before. Um, it had been a few years. But I, basically, if, if I think most teachers saw that, they, they would give the, if that was the assignment, read these two Supreme Court decisions, compare and contrast them write a five paragraph essay, I think they would have given the student an A, probably an A plus, uh, pretty, pretty damn good. It's, you know, it depends on the grade, right? If you, if what it did, but I would have had to do like more sophisticated work for a college student to imagine like a ninth grader, 10th grader and like basic like law, you know, some law elective, like maybe like, wow, this kid just like crushed it, right? So 
I, I think with that, then, uh, and you know, then it gets weird. What do you do? Oh, you know, Johnny, you know, your papers usually aren't very good, so you must have cheated. You know, <laughs> who wants to be in that position? So that's why I kind of mean these these artifacts, these final outputs, where most of the grade, at least the weight of the grade, you know, the majority of the grade, you know, maybe you get a little bit of a grade for your rough draft, these kind of thing. Majority of the grade is on the final output. You know, a friend of mine is a professor. I worked on some of the stuff, and he said. What he's going to do or he's thinking about doing for the upcoming semester is maybe assign a paper, but a very low percentage of the grade is the final product. Right? He's going to have all these different stages like that you have to kind of go through. Maybe one will be like interviewing an expert in the field. One of it will be like, you know, just gathering some sources, which you have to do. One of it will be a rough draft. And he's like, OK, if they want to write the rough draft with the AI, they can't. So these different stages and those maybe those stages in totality, you know, I'm just throwing this out there, would represent 80 percent of the grade. And the final product would only represent like 20 percent of the grade. And it's usually inverted. Right. It's usually inverted. It usually puts the most weight on the final product. But that doesn't make a lot of sense because, uh, you know, that could. 80%, the final product could be 80% produced by an AI. And I guess I, I keep going back to this idea that what we're talking about here is knowledge. Talk about here is, is the transfer of knowledge from, from someone or something to, to a kid and, and being assessed on, on that essay. But maybe this is an opportunity to rethink that. It's not about assessing what you know, but maybe it's about assessing what you can do. Or maybe even better, it's about assessing how you can help people, how you can help the world, how you can, and, and I don't want to go into the, uh, you know, godlike complex of we're here to help and be saviors, but, but certainly what kind of impact you could have on the world? What mark do you leave on the world using AI? So that maybe we just kind of completely rethink the way that we're assessing what we do and, and, and perhaps looking at this as an opportunity to build our relationships. Because I keep going back to this idea of, you know, the, these four C's, this communication, creativity, collaboration, create, creative thing. Communication is change. Uh, because of, of what I can do. Creativity has changed because now you can generate anything. Uh, collaboration changes because now we're working with a whole bunch of different people in different ways. So asynchronously, somehow that, that whole entire world uh, goes away. And, and critical thinking is the one that really hangs by a fingernail. And we could probably put that to the side. But now I'm thinking maybe it's not about what you know. It's about what you can do and, and how you make an impact on the world, hopefully a positive impact. Yeah. So, you know, there's this, you know, I mean, there's obviously always been a debate about like, how much do we actually, you know, what content do we actually need to learn? Um, what, what skills do we need to learn? Um, and I think, you know, my, my kind of general thoughts and look, we, we still need, we still need to learn content for some content for a couple of reasons. First of all, you, you need basic content, right? Like, you know, you need to learn how to read. Uh, you need to learn how to at least do some basic writing. If you then use the AI to like improve, it strengthen your writing. And then that goes a little bit, um, that goes a little bit communication. You need to learn like your basic math. So at the very least, you don't, you don't have to use a calculator when you add seven plus six or, you know, multiply a hundred times five or right. Like you want, you kind of want to understand this, depending on what you want to do. You might, you might need a little more math. I think, I think you need to understand the world around you. And I think that, you know, a lot of this has shifted recently to, oh, well, we need to learn math, science, hard skills that people can use to get jobs. But People talk about like in this in a lot now about values and aligning AI to a value. It was super hard. We might not be able to do it, right? But if we don't have any values, any shared values to align AI to, then like, what's the point? And where do you get your values? People say, well, oh, you know, there, there, there's ethicists and you know, there's religious folks, and sure, some of your values come from there, but a lot of your core values just we come from like learning about the history of your country, or your region, or your world, right? Like. Why, 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 why does everybody in China care less about privacy and believe that like the stronger centralized authority is like, okay. And maybe desirable. Why do people in the United States, like just believe in like free speech and like think anybody should be able to go own a gun. Right. As opposed to people in Italy who like ban chat GPT for a while, because they cared so much about like privacy, like these values, like, and you can debate about like, you know, okay, we can all debate about whose values are better. But the point is you learn values, like part of it, you do learn after history. You learn about that through literature, right? And there, there's content there that kind of informs and helps you develop and think about who you are, right? And your role in the world. And I also think you need to learn how to learn, right? So part of it is like you're learning content because some point in your life, you're going to, you know, okay, I've, I've been learning all about generative AI. Well, why have I been learn so much about that? Because I, I, you know, in debate, I've learned how to learn like quite well. I, I can learn a topic and take it and like break it down like pretty quickly. Um, you know, I can listen to podcasts. Like I can sit around and read a pile of articles and organize all this knowledge. I've learned how to learn like quite well, I think. Um, so I think that 
I think kids, you know, all those things, but then of course their skills, right? Like we, you, you talked about like communication. And of course, I think a lot of prompting involves like strong communication, uh, creativity, um, you know, those are all important, but th- those are skills and you have to get that through practice. You know, like sometimes I, you know, put parents and say, they say, well, my kid already learned how to debate. They have an intro to debate. And then there's all this other debate. Say, well, they already learned. It's like, well, it's a skill. You don't play a sport and say, well, gee, you know, my kid played soccer when they were five. So they learned how to play soccer. Well, no, you, you, you know, you have to be a professional soccer player, but obviously if you just play soccer for a few months, you just get some of those skills. So I think you're kind of learning and developing those skills. But one thing I've really been thinking about, even over the last few days is, what how what role do skills play in that? So I mean schools. What role do schools play? Because if you think about it, the dominant narrative is that most learning happens in school. So school is basically eight hours. Okay, it's like a third of the day. You're supposed to sleep for eight hours, so that's like a third of the day. And you're not sleeping that whole time. You, your mind's kind of somewhere else. So that's a third of the day. And then there's this third of the day where like ah, oh, you do some homework, maybe you have a job, you hang out with your friends, you, you watch some TV with your your family. But most of the learning there's a dominant narrative that most learning occurs in schools. And I really, there's two things that hit me. So there's someone, uh, Yan Lacoon, who's, who's a, he's an AI optimist. He's a chief science, uh, AI scientist at Facebook. He works at NYU, but you know, he, he's kind of someone who doesn't believe these systems are that advanced. And he's one example he gives, he says, well, we still don't have self-driving cars, but a child can learn how to drive a car 16 year old in about 20 hours, which is true. But then it hit me that that's probably not really true. Because the reason you can teach a child to drive in 20 hours is because they've ridden in a car their whole lives. They've seen their parents drive. They've probably ridden a bicycle. You know, you, know, you take take something, you know, sometimes you hear these people who lived in like some part like Australian jungle or Brazilian rainforest. They've had no contact with civilization. I'm 100% convinced that you could not teach one of those people to drive in like 20 hours, right? So, <laughs> so there's this all learning that occurs that has nothing to do with school. And then I thought about this recently, my, my father passed recently and I, I was kind of working on the eulogy and my, my father's did all these like incredible things, but he only went to school until he was 18. And then he went into military for four years. And by his own recollection and my maternal grandmother's recollection, she was his teacher, one of his teachers, he was a pretty bad student. Um, so he didn't really learn them to high school. I mean, you know, I don't mean to sound that, I mean, he helped the story. And so, you know, so achieved. So the, the narratives line up. But, you know, he he, you know, he started like with basically like an entry level job that my uncle uh, got him. And then he was in charge of the whole area for all these uh, for all these stores, like 40 different stores and managed all these people. When we were kids, he loved being involved in our activities. So he became he became the scout master. He was on the school board. He ran he ran the church. He ran the church bingo. Like there's a million things that I like listed on his eulogy. And it's like nobody taught him how to do any of those things. Right. No, no one taught him. No. And there, he didn't listen to a podcast on like <laughs> how to be a, a Boy Scout leader or, you know, any of these things. So, you know, people learn so much, you know, but it's not like he just woke up and, you know, just walked in and became the Boy Scout leader. Well, how did he learn? He learned by seeing what other people do. He learned about, OK, well, I kind of learned. He probably learned, OK, well, as I rose to the ranks and in this job, I learned how to kind of relate to people and interact with people. And he had very strong interpersonal skills. Um, he, he was a very social person. He kind of loved interacting, so he used those skills. But I, I think most of his learning, at least in terms of in terms of what he used in his life, like what percentage of that did he learn in school beyond like, oh, I, you know, I need to read and sign this document. Like, you know, there's some math. I got to manage the finances of the Boy Scouts, right? Like well, beyond beyond kind of those really like just some fundamental basic things, most of what he learned, he did not learn in school. And I think that's another thing that's, you know, so when we start thinking about the roles of schools, okay, what what role do they play? They do play an important role in education and knowledge building and skill building, but it's probably not as big as we think. And once we start to realize that, combined with the idea that machines can do a lot of this stuff, right, combined with the idea that, hey, schools, schools in the U.S., they, they know, but based on some different standards, like the national assessment education progress, even that that don't think it continues to decline. Right. So schools, schools are schools are kind of struggling. Um, there's other competition for attention, whether it's social media. I don't know if you see I, I posted a video about this yesterday, but there's a new blot out called Pi. I thought of talking about this when you brought you brought up the teachers that the whole fun, the whole purpose of this company has got a billion dollars in investment is to develop a bot that like interacts with you like a friend. Right. And how, right. Okay. And, you know, that's kind of cool. It has some downsides, but like, how do teachers compete with that? I think, I think one of the reasons schools have struggled like post the pandemic is that 
kids spent a lot of time on social media during the pandemic and social media, like the companies really improved and figure out how to keep the kids attention. How many teachers during the pandemic sat around, sat around all day and thought about how they're going to get the kids attention when they come back? No, <laughs> what they thought about is, Hey, when I come back from the pandemic, I'm not going to be in zoom or Google classroom anymore. And everything's going to be the same. And the kids came back and they're like sitting with their phone and they're hyper engaged. And again, this is not a criticism of a teacher. I can no teacher can sustain that level of engagement that social media can. And now it's an AI enabled, right? They're talking about AIs being able to, so TikTok works by figuring out what, what content you like and basically continuing to serve you that content, right? So you stay engaged. Talking about AIs that once they figure out what content they like, as you're sitting there, it's gonna produce more related content like automatically. How does a teacher compete with that? That's like impossible, but that gets into strange things about like teaching and learning bots, like, whoa, what, what, is the best learning company going to be one that gets kids addicted to learning? It's cool to say, like, you know, when I coach debate and some kids would get really excited and the parents would be into it, they'd be like, oh, I just love that my kid is just like totally addicted to this and is like learning so much. Okay, yeah, that's cool, you know, but um, it's great, you know, it made me feel good. And it shows the power of debate and engaged and active learning, but you really want your kid to be like addicted to a learning bot. Like if Pi figures this out and sells their technology to an ed tech company and all the kids are just like addicted to learning math, like what happens? They're like, what kind of teachers do they get? Like, can you just pick like, you know, you know, I'll just use boys. as like an example, but everyone likes all oh, my teachers like beautiful. Right. Well, do you just get to pick like, and you, you can do this at whoever you are at any age, like, Oh, I'll just like, you know, th these are the like 9 million teacher profiles or Maybe the AI figures out what I think is beautiful. Like Yuval Harari talks about this because he's gay and he says like, oh, well, the AIs are going to be, could figure out like after monitoring me, where my eyes go on a beach and then figure out if like, I like men or women. And he's like, you know, in Uganda, that can be a problem because if you're gay, you get the death penalty. But my point here is, well, once it figures out like what a student is attracted to, what type of person, it just creates that teacher. And that 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 universal teacher, right? And maybe that changes over time. And but that gets totally weird. Like being a teacher weird about losing their job. What if it's like, well, gee, how am I going to compete with the how how am I going to compete with them? <laughs> not just an attractive teacher. There's a debate, oh, okay. Well, you shouldn't say what's attractive or not. Whatever is attractive to that student, that's what the student gets to see um, every day, all day. Like, how do how do people compete with that they're not and not just competing on knowledge maybe ais have different knowledge but there's other ways that these these companies better than educators know how to get kids attention how to keep their attention how to keep them focused do we want that in education and this goes back to what we were saying originally about this this idea of concept of transfer of power if i'm really interested in nazi germany you're really interested in the french revolution or, or mao or, or whatever it might be the AI serves us what we connect with emotionally. And, and I guess, it, you know, just, just to wrap this up, I, I just wonder what your thoughts are in terms of how this might open us up to spending less time on screens, less time interacting with AI, understanding that tech companies and social media want us to stay, but what might be the possibilities to get us to move away from our screens, using AI paradoxically to get away from our screens and connect with one another? Well, it really depends. I mean, I think in, you know, in some ways, you know, one-on-one -on -one tutoring, like being an example, we can learn content faster. We may or may not be able to learn skills faster. It depends on what they are, but we can probably learn content faster. Um, so in that way, it kind of like frees up, quote, in that way, so in that way, it frees up our time. It could potentially free up our time and saying, well, gee, the content's already there. So if you need to learn something, I'll, I'll teach it to you later. That, that might create some other issues. But then it just kind of, then it becomes like, well, what's the standard? Right. It's like, well, gee, I can learn more faster. Okay. People say generally, and I, I hadn't thought about this enough, that generally the academic expectations are higher than like when I went to school. And then, you know, and you, you can look at any community or school, regardless of kind of where it was, but everybody, everybody's kind of, kind of gone up. So it just kind of becomes easier to learn more content. Then maybe the expectations just kind of change and it doesn't, it doesn't really kind of free up any of our time. Like, you know, take my son's case. If I said, well, say he just had the B in math and he, he wanted to get to the A, but he was spending like three hours trying to figure out how to do it himself and say, well, I got him the tutor. And now he was able to do it in an hour. Okay. So, okay. Now he has two hours to go out and like play basketball. But if it's like, no, 
I want to be a year, a year ahead in math. I want to be at the top of my class in math, right? I want to get into MIT. Then it hasn't saved him any time. It's empowered him to be better than he otherwise would, but it hasn't saved him a second. You can, right? You can say like, well, teachers, hey, you know, they can write their lesson plans and their quizzes with AI and stuff, but they'll save them a lot of time. Okay, they'll have to learn how to reconceptualize their whole classroom, right? So I think they'd, I, I, if I were a teacher, I'd rather just go back to writing the quizzes myself and have to learn how to, I mean, time-wise, I mean, I, I'm more interested in the AI. I think it has a lot of potential, but if you just look at the raw question of time, now the one's forced upon them, right? So it's like, okay, well, you basically have to learn how to teach in an AI world, and then that's going to take your time, and we'll try to save some time in other ways. I definitely think it could free up our time, but like I say, it depends on what the, it depends on what the ultimate, you know, objective is, or what does the ultimate objective become? Because we don't have control over, we don't have control over those objectives. And like, how are you evaluated, right? Like, you know, maybe you go to get a job, and you say, hey, you know, I'd you know, I didn't really like school, but, you know, I used to have really well. So I got all my work done in 30 minutes. The company might look and say, well, hey, that's great. Like, you know, you really don't might say, well, you know, you don't, you're not really a very hard worker. So we want you to come here and, and use AI for, you know, eight hours a day. But you only seem like you want to work 30 minutes a day. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of open questions. And I think that's one thing that's hard. And I think sometimes when people talk to me or other people, like, they want answers. Well, what is education going to look like? Well, I'll tell you some things that might look like. I'll tell you some things that it probably has, the way it's going to get disrupted. That's why I call the blockage. I know, I know there are disruptions. You know, I don't know how this will all pan out. And the problem is, is that the technology is going to keep changing so rapidly. You know, once we get like into multimodalities, like what it means, like talk about the role of teachers, what about the role of doctors? You know, when my, when my son was, when my son was young, he had a, we found that was a, a, a physical birth defect. It was called duodenal stenosis, but only about one in 6,000 kids has this. So he went for a year of his life where there was obviously probably something wrong, but, you know, he would he would eat and then he would kind of throw up. So people first, he thought he had the flu, all these kind of things. We took him all these doctors. They, they couldn't figure it out. Finally, a friend of mine who, who knew a very skilled doctor in, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, New York City, he eventually said, okay, referred, referred this to another specialist who was a friend. Friend figured it out in like a week and he had surgery that day. And, you know, I was kind of saying, oh, yeah, you know, I said, oh, we, we should have come to you first. You know, I didn't say anything about the other doctor, but I was a little kind of frustrated. And he's like, look, he said, you can't be mad at the community doctor. He said, most doctors will go their whole careers and never see this. Right. He's like, I see this because it, these cases end up with me. But now, like to, to, to carry on my point here, imagine you're that doctor who only sees those rare cases, but you're the universal doctor who sees everything. So imagine you go to a doctor who's already had 5 million patients. They're going to be able to diagnose you pretty quickly. They're going to be able to see things like duodenal stenosis that most doctors never see because they have no experience with it. They're going to see patterns that no one else could see because they've only ever had one patient with this one condition. So they would never even think to look about it. Right. And that's how, that's how these things are going to become super. That, that's why these things are like, like super powerful. Um, so there, it's going to change a lot of things. So then, you know, to go back to the point, well, what does a doctor become? Is the doctor like, right? Like a doctor, yeah, become a surgeon or like, okay, well, the doctor is the one who confirms the machine's diagnosis, right? It kind of goes back because you're probably going to need, at least for a while, human and machine. Some people will say in a couple of years, it'll be malpractice not to involve AI in your diagnosis. Right. That you, you know, what, what do you hear this? You're this huge technology here that can uh, help you diagnose a patient and you didn't even use it. And they'll say the same people say the same thing about lawyers. Right. So it's not just going to change teaching. It's going to change things. But look, we're, we need we need laws to organize society. We need we need medicine um, as long as we want to you know, not suffer. And we're people who want to continue to improve our lives. We're, we're going to. We still need to learn, you know, exactly what we need to learn and what that balance is between knowledge and skills and how we learn that's going to change. But these kind of major sectors of society are still going to exist. Um, so, I, I mean, education is still going to exist. And it might exist in a radically different form. It exists in a radically different form than it did in the 1800s. People didn't go to school all day and kick it, kick soccer balls around at three o'clock. Right. Like, <laughs> come on. Right. So. They didn't go home and do their homework. They didn't have time. They were like went to the fields, right? So the world, the world, it, it is going to change things a lot. Um, 
And I do think, you know, people who do well are in it and be good, be good, at, be good at change. I think a lot, you know, some people retire, but, um, you know, I find it exciting, but as someone pointed out to me when I first got into this, she's like, you really like instability. You like, you like chaos. You like to kind of, you know, dive into it and try to sort stuff out. And most, a lot of people I'll say they, they don't like that. A lot of people teach biology for like 30 years and they'll either teach, <laughs> they, may, they might not even teach AP bio. Or maybe they only teach AP Bio for 30 years, right? That ha- I-, I couldn't do that, right? Now, so, you know, someone who could do that, they obviously have a, a skill that's actually pays better than debate coaching, uh, teaching AP Bio, right? So, um, so, so, you know, they have a, a very valuable skill. Now, maybe the skills, a little, the skills, like I say, the skills that teachers need are probably going to change. And the type of people who are interested in teaching, that's, that's going to change as well. You know, it's going to be, it's only really going to be the people who really like working with kids. It's not like, well, kids are okay, but I just love AP Bio. I just don't really see that as a job five years from now. I love it. I love it. And that, that is a, a wonderful way, I think, to, 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 to wrap up the conversation that the future of teaching is with people who love kids. Stefan, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.com. And we look forward to hearing from you soon.